1: All right. Welcome to our show. If you, know, if you knew me better, you'd know that I have kind of a, uh, an obsession with the blizzard of 1888. So in the blizzard of 1888, which was a white hurricane, as somebody called it, uh, a lot of people were stuck in hotels. And there's this kind of famous letter that Mark Twain writes from a hotel in New York where he, he, it's to his wife, Olivia, and who he, Livy. So, Livy has not been able to join him because of the the blizzard. He can't get home because of the blizzard. And he's, as Twain will do, kind of whining about the whole thing. At one point, he says something like, I am out of wife, I find that I am out of wife, out of children, out of line, and out of cigars. And to Twain, at that moment, a hotel is just a place where you can't have everything you want. Everything you want is at home which is one of the things that a hotel can be. Of course, the other thing, though, is that in 1888, probably the lobby of Twain's Hotel would have been a very interesting place. In fact, one of the things I've spent a certain amount of time trying to prove to myself— It's possible he and P.T. Barnum were both in that same hotel, stuck in this blizzard in 1888. So he could have gone down to the lobby and maybe, or or to any of the common areas, and maybe the bar is probably where he would have wound up, and he might have found P.T. Barnum. Because... Back in those days in particular, hotels were set up a little bit more that way. I mean, I'm sure he had a really nice room, but typically in a hotel in the late 19th century, you know, those grand old hotels up in Maine, for example, your room might be rather unglamorous because they didn't think you'd spend much time there. You would sleep there, but you'd go down to the common areas the rest of the time because there was less – Fewer sources of stimulation. There wasn't a television in your room because there was no television, that kind of thing. So news and and news was something you got down in the lobby where other people from other places had come. And the The temptation to be there was large, so they made the lobbies better. All right, so that's me philosophizing uh, about hotels. Um, although I was thinking about that this weekend too, or last last week I was up in Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts, staying in a very nice hotel called The Porches, right across the street. But I was thinking, yeah, well, we'll talk about this. We're talking about hotels today. That's the main thing that you need to know. And a little bit later, we're gonna be talking to, uh, we're gonna be talking about hotel melancholy with two people. One of them is uh, Suzanne Joinson, a British author. Uh, And senior lecturer who, while touring the world, staying in all manner of hotels and all manner of places, suddenly started to realize that it was getting in her head in a really unpleasant way. And Dr. Leo Mezzo, who is the curator of American art at Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, has a book out about Edward Hopper and the American Hotel, but also about the hotels in art. Uh, Hopper's hotels, like everything else that Hopper does, seem exceedingly lonely and melancholy. But we're going to start on a somewhat happier note with uh, Hannah Sam- Sampson, staff writer at The Washington Post, where she reports on travel news uh, and uh, with the stuff that's a lot of fun to read. And we're going to talk a little bit about the rise of micro hotels and maybe some other stuff uh, as well, as time permits. So, uh, Hannah Sampson, welcome to our show. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: So, um, well, let's talk about micro-hotels. Micro-hotels in some ways are a little bit of a callback to what I was talking about before. Uh, Some of these new chains or kind of brands within, sub-brands within big chains now give you a much smaller, perhaps less glamorous room with the idea that maybe you are headed down to the common spaces, correct? that's where
2: that's the direction they'd love people to take, right? They'll, they'll make the room small, under 200 square feet usually, and um, and by doing that, encourage the guests to congregate in other places, in buzzy public spaces that they've built to kind of appeal to those guests and, and also to people in the community.
1: So the um, n- notion of this is somewhat generationally rooted, right? There's maybe an idea that that baby boomers won't do this, but millennials will?
2: People love to talk about, like, millennials at heart or millennial mindsets. So I think that's really what they're going for, for here. Um, but, yes, it, it, is, it is with the idea that, you know, maybe millennials aren't that far out of college in some cases. They're, they're used to cramming into a dorm room or they're used to living in a tiny apartment, and they just – what would they do with a 350-square-foot hotel room? Like, who needs all that space So, yeah, make it make it cheaper to build the hotel, um, make the rate a little cheaper for the guest and uh, try to make everybody happy.
1: Right. We should say also, I mean, Americans historically have had these kind of deranged ideas about how big a hotel room should be. And if you go on a site like TripAdvisor and watch Americans describing their hotel room in Amsterdam or something, I mean, the number of people will will say it's so small. Uh, and you know, and I, like I don't know what it is they want to do in that room, but th- that's th- their immediate reaction is the room's too small.
2: Yeah, I mean, you go to New York as well, and that's that's kind of the take. But um, yeah, maybe we're a little spoiled here <laughs> in the U.S. with our roomy, uh, our roomy four-bedroom houses and uh, and our big old hotel rooms that we don't really need.
1: Well, I think – so I've stayed in some of these micro hotels, and even though I am a baby boomer, I like them. And so I've stayed in the Arlo uh, hotels, and I've stayed in a fairly new one in New York called – I think it's called Sister City Hotel, and it's uh, over in the kind of Bowery area uh, of New York. And, and the truth is you can have a 250-square-foot f- room that's not particularly well-designed, and you don't, in fact, feel – Like you can move around it very comfortably and you can have a 125 square foot room that's really intelligently designed and it feels like there's plenty of room and not only that, but everything you want is easily reachable. I mean, a lot of this, what we're talking about, Hannah, I think, Hannah, is is, I think design.
2: Exactly. And design and effective smart use of space. Um, So you might find like the little folding table or, or the thing you put your suitcase on to be hung on the wall when you're not using it or the chair is is Somehow tucked under the bed or something. I stayed at a Citizen M in London last year that reminded me very much of a cruise ship because of the way it was kind of all laid out very, very efficiently. But you know what? The bed was huge and really comfortable, and and that was really all that mattered. And I had enough room to work on my laptop if I wanted to. So it was tiny, tiny, but it you know it did the job.
1: Right, and I, I think that's the other thing, is that increasingly we we bring a lot of things with us uh, in terms of communication devices, entertainment devices, stuff like that. So rather than needing this kind of... This huge thing that looks like an armoire and you open it up and there's a TV and there's a this and a, 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 that in it. I mean, for the most part, you get there and you pull out your laptop and your phone and you look around. And now every hotel you go to uh, has, you know, connectivity ports of all different kinds and things that interface with uh, through Bluetooth. And so with, you know, a fairly small amount of stuff, you can start to create whatever your virtual space is.
2: Exactly. And you, I mean, you don't really need a giant dresser and you don't need a massive closet and you don't need, I mean, maybe you need an ironing board, but some of these tiny hotels have uh, an ironing room that you can just go to and do what you need and then come back. So um, they really have kind of rethought every element that was kind of standard before and, uh, and tried to scale it down or scale it back.
1: Right. Uh, the Arlo one had various things that folded up and folded down um, so, so I could create the space I needed at a given moment. And the Sister City one, they used hooks really well, which that doesn't okay. sound like the most imaginative technology. No, but, but having hook hooks. Yeah. I mean, it's like being on a boat or something. Having hooks for everything. Because everything you want then is kind of hanging there where you can see it, too. You don't have to rummage around to remember where you put it and stuff like that. You suddenly realize yeah. how great hooks are.
2: <laughs> you really, you wish more, I mean, especially in the bathroom, there's never enough hooks for towels. and You just really wish somebody would send that message to all hotels, like hooks are good, more hooks.
1: And the other thing I would assume from the company's point of view is that Whatever the total square foot you, square foot footage you need to locate, let's say a Marriott somewhere, it's like some insane amount of space. If you're going to have conventionally sized rooms and a con, conventional layout from for one of the big chains, uh, I don't know how much total square footage that is, but it's a lot. Whereas the, some of the places that I've stayed, not only is my room small, but I realize the total space that the hotel occupies. Even having gone the extra mile uh, in certain ways to have have this third space type common space, it means you can have a hotel where you didn't used to be able to have a hotel.
2: Exactly. You can kind of shoehorn in, you know, maybe a 110-room hotel or something um, where all those rooms are pretty small, and you still have room on the ground floor for that big working area, lobby, lounge that you want. But it means you can, if you're a hotel owner or an investor, you can probably get away with being in san francisco or dc or or new york when that might have not been like a financial puzzle that made sense in the past
1: right i still haven't found the great little micro hotel in san francisco is is it there somewhere have you found one
2: i mean i haven't stayed in one but i i know that one of these brands that we're talking about has a location in san francisco i don't remember if it's moxie or if Motto's going there if it's Citizen M, I'm not sure. I know that there is one there, and who knows how inexpensive it is because, um, you know, because it's San Francisco and everything. It could still, (laughs) right? You could still be paying what you'd pay for, like a, a La Quinta Inn, you know. Or the opposite, you could still be paying what you'd be paying for like a super fancy hotel somewhere somewhere in a less popular oh, market.
1: Absolutely. And the hamburger downstairs is $38. So, um, right. so uh, everything I think about travel has been challenged for all of us really by the emergence of Airbnb and VRBO and all the other ones like that. And so the hotel industry must is some of what we're talking about right now, the hotel industry thinking, boy, we've got to get nimble in a different way. Maybe our old routines don't work. And if so, how do these kinds of hotels answer the challenge posed by, say, Airbnb?
2: Yeah, so there's a a couple of things that um, are still complaints about Airbnb that these hotels are trying to address. And one of them is that if you're a business traveler, There are still companies that aren't cool with you staying at Airbnbs um, just because they want to have the reassurance that there's somebody there in case something happens. They want to know that the fire codes and everything are all checked. Uh, So so business travel, this can be appealing to that group. Um, But also at Airbnb, you're pretty isolated. There's not a lobby for you (laughs) and the other Airbnb people on the block. Um, So people really do crave some kind of communal space and some kind of interaction with other people, that is not something Airbnb has typically been able to provide. And that is something that these micro hotels really prioritize.
1: It's a great point and a lot of the rest of the show after you depart will be devoted to loneliness and melancholy and how that's expressed both in the actual experience of hotels at times and the way artists uh, have seen that and, but in many respects, the kind of hotel that we're talking about where you can always leave the room, you can go downstairs and there's somebody you can ask a question of, although let's be honest. Front desks in some of these places are not what front desks used to be. There's an awful lot of self-check-in and, and stuff yeah. like that going on there.
2: Yeah, sometimes you really got to figure it out. Uh, usually there's someone lurking to help you figure it out, but I believe it's Moxie that um, I think you just check in at the bar, and and I think there's also like a free drink involved. But, yeah, I mean, do not expect like to, to wait in the line uh, for somebody at the desk who you will talk to and get your key from it is – and you'll just use your phone as the key right. to get into the room. This is so, not the yeah, uh, technology this, is yeah really erasing a lot of that face to face time.
1: This is not the grand Budapest hotel. Ray Fiennes is not <laughs> waiting for you in a purple tuxedo jacket. So um, if
2: that's what you want. Don't go to a micro hotel. Right <laughs> there, you, there
1: you go. So we only got a couple of minutes left, and I, I just discovered that you'd written about something else that I'm kind of fascinated by. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, uh, we all know. Well, those of us of a certain age know that Rocky Raccoon checked into his room only to find Gideon's Bible um, and so I, you know I haven't really been keeping track of this all that carefully is there a Gideon's Bible in every hotel that I stay at these days but you have Hannah what did you find
2: well, I found, uh, I found some in L.A. <laughs> on a recent trip, and that got me thinking about this. Um, I believe the number was, there was a survey done by an industry group, and I believe the number was roughly 65% of hotels still offer some kind of printed religious material in their room. Interestingly, to cross over to the other conversation that we're having, um, Moxie, which is one of these micro hotel brands, does not, um, Marriott requires almost all of their hotels to offer both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And Moxie is an exception to that rule. Um, Just because of the crowd that they're trying to reach, it's not the same. They don't believe it resonates as much. Also, there's a lot less space in a Moxie. So um, there are some brands who are not, you know, making a point of not including Bibles or other religious material. Um, And then there are some brands that are making a point of Offering like a variety of material, but not in the room. right Just so, letting letting you kind of choose from a menu. Right, uh, and,
1: and pick what you want. That was my favorite thing from your piece. Prov- I'm quoting you to use, mm-hmm. back to you right now, Hannah, but Providence Hotels with 14 properties in the United States offers guests a spiritual menu in their mm-hmm. rooms that lets them call the front desk and request the book of their choice. I need the Bhagavad Gita and a copy of Soylent Green. Please send them up <laughs> right away. Uh, the company introduced the option more than a decade ago to recognize and honor the diversity of our guests, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then you've got other people who are like, you know, very upset religious, freedom from religion groups who just don't want there to be anything like that. Although, you know, I mean, you know, you might check in, you might be a teetotaler, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't be a mini bar in the room, you know, for the next person who wants it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can, you definitely can end up being confronted by something you don't want to be confronted with. Um, This group makes a point of asking hotels to remove the Bibles if if they have a group coming to stay there for a conference or something. (laughs) Um, They also have stickers that they put on Bibles that say this could be hazardous to your health or something, a literal belief in this could be hazardous to your health. Um, You know, so people do feel very strongly, maybe, you know, maybe if you are going to a place where you're an alcoholic and you you are an alcoholic and you don't want to be confronted with that, you could also call ahead, ask them to remove that um, temptation. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a variety of, of fairly strong opinions on this subject I discovered.
1: All right. So uh, we have to stop there. We have all kinds of other stories we're going to tell you as we go along today, including the story uh, of a woman who spent a lot of time in hotels and it started messing with her head. But right now, thanks to Hannah Sampson, uh, one of my new favorite writers, staff writer at The Washington Post, where she reports on travel news. Here come the people to ask you to support us. Please support this show.
3: Good afternoon. We are the people. Ryan Lindsay here with Ryan Karen King on this Wednesday afternoon hump day. Uh, We have a thousand dollar goal and we are one hundred and forty five dollars into that goal. Not bad. And so support us. I'm just going to cut you the chase. Support us. You can save your use your dollars, not for Airbnb or a hotel. (laughs) Rack up some frequent flyer miles or some points with this WNPR Connecticut public radio family here and we will generously reward you Um, we have a lot of promos today one of them being that if you like the news which you know we do the news here but if you like the news from Washington Post um, or the New York Times it's Newsday Wednesday and so you can grab a digital subscription for $15 a month rather than the 19 that it usually is so if that is tickling your news fancy Mm. Hit us up online, WNPR.org, to donate or 1-800-584-2788. So if
4: you're, if you're traveling, uh, you know, you're listening to the show and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm I have some travel plans. Well, you know, public radio is one of those things that can stay with you wherever you go. So if you're going on a road trip, mm-hmm. public radio, it's great. You know, you can just kill so much time that you would just be driving so bored out of your mind. Listening to podcasts or your local stations, yes, um, and you know, and, and this is we can't bring this stuff to you uh, without your help because we got to pay for it too. Um, so you know, we pay NPR for local program or not local program, uh, national programming, right? We also have to pay people here to bring you local programming. It's not just you know, it's not uh, you know, it, it, we got to pay for microphones. We have to pay salaries um we have to pay to keep the lights on
3: all Uh, the things it's quite an operation (laughs) um
4: so you know if if the 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 public radio playlist that you have on your phone or your radio dial is important to you um, and you want to keep it around and you feel like you know this is something that you listen to more than, you know, say two minutes a week and maybe it's like 10 minutes a day. Maybe it's two hours a day. Everyone's at a different point. Uh, you know, maybe you're feeling the podcasts that you listen to are a nice break to all this crazy news coverage that, you know, you, you we all put ourselves through every day. Right. And you, you want to switch it off and listen to something like This American Life. Um, and just sort of get get a little mental break. Well, you know, we bring those to you as well, Um, whether it's on FM or your phone uh, as a podcast. uh, There's just a lot of stuff coming at you. All right, so 1-800-584-2788. You can also go to wnpr.org.
3: And you are listening to Colin in real time, uh, but when we were just providing that um, very intensive uh impeachment coverage you were able to listen to colin via podcast uh the of me podcast with that beautiful hot pink fuchsia mm. logo mm. brought to you that was designed in-house so we're not outs- outsourcing for graphic designers that was the work of the, our very own john gibson mm. shout out to him and so those are part of the things that your dollars go- goes to is being able to when the creative minds get together here and say hey we'd like to do this as a public service, but also to break through all that's coming through the air that we, you know, the, the information we're pulling in nationally from NPR with regard to impeachment, all that coverage to really go deeper, dive deeper into a very important and historic issue. Mm-hmm. Um And so that is just one way that your dollars make a difference. And, and they really do. We want to thank our friend Christopher in West Hartford. Thanks, Chris. He actually took advantage of a great promo that we're offering is that we have these cool, waffly, toasty um, Connecticut public hats that you could fold up if you'd like, if that's more your style. But at any rate, if you um, select that as your donation for a gift of $10 a month, then you'll be donating two hats and two pairs of gloves to Hartford Public Schools. And I heard. Be our own Gary Argianis. that the temperatures are getting ready to drop off this weekend.
4: Okay, alright. Winter is, winter is here, winter I guess.
3: Winter is here. <laughs> it's coming. It's still here. <laughs> despite the temperatures. So, hit us up. 1-800-584-2788 for your donation or WNPR.org. I don't
4: I don't like when my head is cold or my ears. It's not And fun. I also uh, like when my ears are full of public radio. <laughs> um, like, you know, I do all of my ironing. I don't even do any iron. I do all of my la- laundry like, to, to public radio. <laughs> Um, And, you know, I really couldn't imagine a world where there was just, you know, a deafening silence, Mm. uh, you know, the void that would exist without this this wonderful news and entertainment and culture programming that comes at you all the time. Okay, so if you value that, too, if that means something to you, 1-800-584-2788, that's the number you can call to support us. You can also go to WNPR.org. And thank you so very much for your support.
1: Good morning. No, I don't think so. I'm Mr. Caltenborn, the manager of what's left of the hotel. I'm awfully sorry about this whole mess here. Usually this doesn't happen. Mr. Bannister, I have a message for you from the staff of the hotel. Really? What is it? Goodbye. That's the entire message? We would appreciate it if you would check out. When? Yesterday. That soon. I don't suppose you have another room you could let me use just mm. for... There is no such place as the Grand Budapest Hotel, but if there was one and somebody that you or I know were to have stayed at it, it might very well be our next guest. Uh, Returning to the hotel to be greeted by Ray Fines in his purple tuxedo after having participated in a panel about British British literature uh, held in a nearby hall in Budapest. Uh, that would be Suzanne Joinson, British author and senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Chichester in West Sussex, England. She's the author of A Lady Cyclist's Guide to Kashgar uh, and The Photographer's Wife. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, we should say that this radio program uh, is actually a 10 year experiment uh, in trying to figure out how to pronounce the name of the magazine that we keep finding really terrific essays in. It's either Eon or Ion or Aeon. We don't really know. Nobody, nobody, no. even they don't know nobody either. Nobody knows. No one knows. <laughs> nobody knows. But you wrote, uh, and, and it's interesting because our, our final segment today after this one will be about, at least partly about, the art of Edward Hopper. But uh, your essay, which is about ho- Hotel Melancholy, is appropriately accompanied in that publication uh, by uh, by one of Hopper's famous paintings uh, of, a, yeah. of a lone woman in a hotel in El Paso. So basically, we should set the scene here. You, from the age of roughly 25 to 35, you traveled a lot for work. You maybe even volunteered for travel that other people might have not volunteered for. And you stayed in hotels all over the world, big, small, nice, medium. So and what was the net effect of that on you?
5: Yeah, so for about 10 years, I was traveling. Most of the time, it was quite fancy hotels. I was working in sort of international relations, and I would be in these huge, um, wonderful hotels with, you know, a bar and a welcoming entrance and great big huge beds and um, slippers in the wardrobe and all that kind of thing. And at the start, it was quite fun. Um, but after a few years of this, and I was you know, in, in the same month, I might find myself in China and then over in Berlin and then somewhere else, um, it started to scramble me up completely. And when I entered the hotel room spaces, um, not just the room, but the lobbyists and the whole building, I started to have this kind of disorientating, really strong kind of sense of who am I? What am I? And it began to get quite existential
1: well let's let 's talk about some of the components of this. Did it have to do with and by the way, people should read this essay we won 't be able to do justice to it and there 's this great oh. scene of what happens and when she goes to swim in a swimming pool in a hotel, which is something she likes to do but um is it is there something about the architecture of the room itself? Is there something about a hotel room that mm. that has a message
5: I think so. thanks for the kind words on the essay um yeah, well, hot- hotels are designed to take you away from normal life. You know, they might be offering you luxury or an experience or an escape or a respite, you know, the kind of um, feeling of a, of a dwelling, the old-fashioned idea of a kind of safe space on your travels. Um, and if you're feeling okay in your life, that idea of, if you're feeling very grounded, then that idea of um, going somewhere else, shedding your normal skin and your normal routine is is fine. In fact, it can be enjoyable. I'm sure the whole hotel industry would want you to think it's enjoyable. But if you're feeling a bit ungrounded and a little bit shaky, entering the space of a hotel room, um, whether it's a big luxurious one or a neutral one, can be can set off these questions in your head about who you are and identity and where you belong and what you're doing. Um, and very quickly, you can end up inspiring a little bit, especially if you're looking out the window down at a city or some kind of landscape outside and you realize you don't belong.
1: I and think, yeah. Mm, no, continue, sorry. continue. I'm sorry.
5: Yeah, that's okay. I was just thinking that the, 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 you know, we've all had that experience where you walk along the, the uh, corridor and every single door on each side is the same. And there's a kind of anonymous lift space on the left and a stairwell on the other. And it's almost like your usual self. As you step along that corridor, and those big, thick, fluffy carpets starts to starts to disappear, and then you have to confront what's left. And sometimes that's positive, and other times that's negative.
1: Yes, well, a lot of movies, like The Shining and Barton Fink, have yeah. have done what they yeah. can to suggest how ominous that really is. But I think another part of this, and I've really been thinking it a lot, looking at some of the paintings uh, for the final segment that we're going to do, is there's a way in which your Absolutely. Not even metaphorically, but truly replaceable in your hotel room. Someone has been there before you. Someone is coming in after you. The person who was there before you, you may be sitting in a small armchair in your hotel room that somebody, the previous person sat in with their derriere all naked or something. You don't know you know yeah. how how you've been sort of pre violated <laughs> yeah. Yeah. go ahead, run with that
5: yeah the, 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 you know those rooms are intimate aren't they mm-hmm. you know you're 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 using the you're using the washroom you're in the you're in the bath you're in the bed, you always have that no matter how crisp and clean the sheets are, you always have that little thought like is this a fresh is this a fresh sheet? Are these fresh pillows? Um, and it's very odd to be there and have, feel part of this chain. And I was in fact a writer in residence once in um, Beijing in an incredibly, incredibly fancy hotel. I was told when I got there that the room I was given was the same one that Bob Dylan had stayed in. Who <laughs> you knows if that was true? It was so ridiculous. I had two be- two bathrooms, and it took me sort of two minutes to walk from one side to the other and there was bowls of fruit and and yeah outside the window it was freezing um there was some kind of civil unrest going on I could see I could see tanks and things like that and I felt so tiny and I felt so far away from my home and I think it's always to do with home being in a being in a hotel room can either feel like an escape from home, or it can feel like you're trapped and you can't get back to home. So I think wherever you are, you end up reflecting on that relationship back to home.
1: Right. And so as as you suggest... Wherever you are existentially, just in most of your life, you're going to go there faster and deeper, probably in a hotel room. Uh, yeah. And 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 I also do think that it has to do as your my friend Peter Shapiro used to say, you should go away so you'll want to come back. because um, yeah. our our home life seems much more volitional. I, I think at the end of a trip, it's like, oh, yes, I'm here. This is where I really want to be. I've planned my whole life so I'd be here most of the time. But it, but what you were doing really ultimately for for those 10 years or so was almost not really having a home. You, you had some kind of shared occupancy thing somewhere, but you were really almost living in this way.
5: Yeah. I was running away from home is what I was doing, and I kept on pushing it and pushing it. And... um I would I would go and then I would, I had this sort of like push me, pull me thing. So as soon as I was home, I would only, fit. Oh, home in inverted commas, I was at the beginning of this time, I was living in a shared house in London, you know, the kind of late 20s shared house in the city land. Um, and later on I was in a relationship and then finally I was at the beginning of a marriage. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, At home, when I was at home, I used to think, God, claustrophobic, I need to get out of here. I need to get out to the country and this city, and i go somewhere, preferably as far away as I possibly could. And then as soon as I got there, I just wanted to come home. And this looped and looped and looped and carried on. And in fact, I still do it a little bit, but I do it on a longer um, span now. So, for example, I, 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 I also stayed at the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem to do some research on my book, and that was more rooted. I was there for a bit of a longer time. I had a specific project. It was all linked into a book I was writing. It felt a bit more consolidated, less of this panicky fleeting feeling. But even so, I was still disconnected from what was going on in Jerusalem. I was still disconnected from home. And I ended up back again in that sort of you know, paradox.
1: One of the things you mentioned in your essay... Well, let's back up and say, uh, I think another thing that does happen in hotels is if people are going to come unglued, they mm-hmm. may very well come unglued in the, ho- in the hotel room for a variety of reasons, including the way that in our regular lives, we're able to kind of compensate for our anxieties, our phobias, because we once again, we know the terrain, we know the landscape. There's some people around who know us, we know them. Uh, mm-hmm. We can sort of fool ourselves into thinking we maybe feel a little bit better than we mm-hmm. actually do. But you write about significant Oh, women writers and painters, often from the surrealist tradition in particular, who just lost it in hotels. So tell us about this.
5: Yeah, I think if you're if you're feeling vulnerable on any level, particularly in terms of mental health and uh, that sort of thing, you know, hotel rooms will really undo you. So um, <laughs> yes, I found myself during this time of travelling and working. I started to write my first book, and that was about travellers and. Um, female artists and writers. And I found myself drawn to um, the surrealists. And um, this this motif of the hotel room and coming undone and finding themselves in there just came up over and over again. In particular, um, there's a surrealist artist called Leonora Carrington, who whose story is really complicated and difficult. So she was on the run from the Nazis in 1940. And her lover, Max Ernst, had been arrested by the Gestapo. So she was in a um, state of quite serious distress. And she was trying to escape France, and she got to the border and through various means managed to get through to Spain and then get to Madrid. She stayed in the Hotel International, First of all, and she had this theory that she could go to the rooftop, and if she was on the roof of this hotel, she could somehow control what was happening in the war and what was happening in Europe. She was in entering a kind of vortex of psych, a psychotic vortex in which she believed she was at the heart of everything. And then she got kicked out of the Hotel International, and she went to um, a, a hotel called Hotel Roma. And in there, she really in that in that room, she 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 really experienced a full psychotic breakdown, and it was connected to this feeling of being in this place, being trapped in this place, being a stranger, being on the run, being in this transient temporary zone. Um, And she wrote a book called Down There, which is a really incredible um, depiction of what happened to her there. And um, in the throes of this, sort of mental illness in these rooms she wrote she writes in her book she wrote something like i spent the nights taking cold baths over and over again and i would put my nightgowns on and take them off one was silk green silk the other pink And this sort of repetitive behavior engaging engaging with the bathroom and then back out onto the roof and then back out into the lobby and finally um when it was seeing that she she, would, she had gone completely mad, as, as it was termed at that time, she, she was taken to another hotel called the Ritz. Um, and there she was, in fact, locked in a room and eventually taken away to a sanitarium. And so the whole story is this series of connected hotels and rooms and displacement in this city in this sort of terrible spiraling, really fascinating. And for the rest of her life, she returned to this both in her paintings and her writings, um, to understand what it was that happened to her. And I think that the hotel space had a very strong uh, role to play in this for her.
1: Well, this is fascinating stuff. And uh, Suzanne joins let us know immediately on the next time you write an essay, because we'll want to do another show with you. British author, (laughs) senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Chichester in West Sussex. The author of A Lady Cyclist's Guide to Kashgar and The Photographer's Wife. Thank you for joining us today.
5: Thank you very much.
1: All right, we're gonna take a little break, quick break, not a fundraising break, not one of those breaks, short break, and then we're gonna be back with our final segment. Welcome back. Uh, Let me just quickly tell you that today's show was produced by senior producer Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Khalil Rahman is our intern. Uh, He's been getting all the guests on the phones and stuff like that. Cat Pastor's on the board making it sound good. Uh, And what What else do I need? Tomorrow we are going to do a show about secession and particularly about the idea that here in a time of grave discontent and division, and not to put too fine a point on it, but just imagine that President Trump were to acquire a second term in office that there might be some heavily blue areas of the country that would think, well, maybe it's time to join up with the maritime provinces of Canada and start a new something or other. So we're going to talk about the mechanics of secession, the history of secession, places that have seceded from one thing or another. Uh, We'll have lots of interesting guests. uh, And what else do you need to know? It's a a Friday on the Nose, our cultural roundtable, Knives Out. where It actually came out a while ago, but we're just getting around to seeing it, and we can't wait to talk to you about it. All right time to, for our final segment here. Uh, Dr. Leo Mazo is the Cochrane curator of American art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and the author of an absolutely hypnotic book. Um, uh, these are interconnected essays with uh, incredible art uh, within uh, Edward Hopper and the American Hotel. And he joins us now. Welcome to this conversation, sir. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So let's begin. We won't begin quite with Hopper just yet, although uh, sure. maybe we can talk about why artists are drawn to hotels. I think a lot of it is set up by some of the conversations we've had already. First of all, that notion of the solitary person in a hotel room, that person is usually therefore disconnected from his or her normal environment, from his or her family, from all the trappings of normal life. Maybe that person becomes more that person in that particular moment.
0: I think I think so. And I also think, though, that artists might be drawn to hotels for yet even more prosaic, utilitarian reasons. Um, a lot of artists are on the road, uh, even to this day, not just in Hopper's time in search of subject matter. Um, Artists are also – a lot of artists uh, in Hopper's lead and certainly before him are interested in vernacular architecture, and the more wonky, the better. And more than that, there's a uh, time-honored tradition of artists using the view from hotel roofs and hotel windows and front doors as ideal vantage points to understand the landscape unfolding before them.
1: Right. there. I should say, by the way, before I forget, one of my favorite things about this book is that in the back, there's two old fashioned roadmaps. So if you want to follow the travels of Edward and Josephine, otherwise known as Joe Hopper, uh, across America and and see lots of. Triangles of sunlight that somehow or other make you feel sad. <laughs> um, uh, you can do this uh, in a very, very easy way. So, but you know, you think about some of the hotel, some of the art that's in this book. Whether it's, you know, whether it's Hopper's really, really famous desert hotel, this El Paso hotel where there's this woman on a red bed where she's great. You know, people usually sit in chairs in life. They sit in right. chairs or on sofas. But in art, in hotels, they're often sitting on the edge of a bed or the side of a bed. She's kind of gripping the back, the foot rail of the bed. There's this other George Siegel uh, thing in, in your book that has this really incredibly desolate looking blue figure uh, sitting on the edge of a bed while another much darker figure lies in, in the bed that sitting on beds thing uh, it 's a motif i 'm not sure I entirely understand what it 's all about. Maybe you can help me
0: i 'm not sure hopper himself uh, understood what it was all about either um, so a lot of a lot of the figures in hopper 's art and certainly in siegel 's art um, these are these uh, these are artists who certainly have their share of transportation imagery like you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. But Siegel and Hopper are two artists who are less interested in cars than they are in roads and diners. Uh, Hopper was less interested in boats than he was in, say, lighthouses. So he's interested in the things that facilitate tra- transportation as opposed to the mechanical imagery itself. I mean, he certainly has that. But what he has, and what I think you're responding to, are images of people waiting, not unlike uh, something you'd expect from a film still, lacking what came before, lacking what what comes after. In a in a good Hopper paint, painting, individuals are. Um, Per- perpetually waiting, and they 're isolated and they 're alone but again it 's a very particular type of aloneness where they 're uh, waiting for someone to come to the door, waiting for the next moment and The reason I think that they 're often on in beds as opposed to in chairs is because the conceit in most Hopper painting and in a lot of literature, say Hemingway and uh, Elizabeth Wharton, things like this, is you get the sense of somebody having just arrived. In a Hopper painting, typically the beds are made. uh, They often have nothing short of hospital corners on them. The light is still very antiseptic, and it often renders the room um, very clinical, Almost too too clean look. So yeah, these things that are meant to give us comfort and rejuvenation, in a Hopper painting, well, the figures haven't quite acclimated to them yet.
1: There's I think another thing that would have attracted a, a painter like Hopper and others, particularly in those first fifty years of the 20th century. And that, I'll tell you a really quick story. So I was covering a, a national Democratic National Convention. It must have been in 2000 in New York City, and we're all staying. The delegation I'm covering is staying in one of the Helmsley hotels. And that one of the mornings, I come down to the meeting room where the delegation is all assembled and they're being spoken to by a U.S. senator, and suddenly. Nelson Mandela appears, uh, oh, and, right. and he gives a speech to the delegation and everything like that. And so there's this kind of rule if you're a journalist that you don't go up and shake people's hands or try to get somebody to shake hands with you. You just don't do it. You're not supposed to do sure. it. And, and, but I, I, I stepped out in the hall— because I just wanted to see Mandela walk by. And I step out in the hall, and the hall is lined with everybody who worked at the hotel, chambermaids, cooks, people who bring your food up to your room, everybody like that. And they're black, they're white, they're Latino, they're Asian, they're from all over the world, and they are lining there, and they are going to shake Mandela's hand. And I suddenly realized, wow, we think of hotels as a place where we stay, but there's all these people, these people who, are, for the most part, aren't documented. I don't mean that they don't have documents, but I, although that might be the case. But they're not documented by art so much. And you see Hopper and other, some of these other people turning their eyes towards that group of people.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, most hotels, certainly pictures of hotels, um, look like a page out of a Pottery Barn catalog. Or they look like a home staged for sale. Hopper reminds us um, often, and certainly, I think your your experience in in the hallway waiting for Nelson Mandela to come by, of just how of the I mean, what you were looking at is the no, notoriously unglamorous work of resort and hospitality services. Um, so, looking at a Hopper painting and other paintings, and looking at um, a hotel motif in Hemingway or Wharton, certainly. It's important to ask who's not in the picture. Just because they're not in the picture doesn't mean that they didn't uh, contribute to the very uh, luxury and visual and physical sensibility that you pay for when you buy a hotel room for the night.
1: Um, on the cover of your book is a uh, maybe not as famous painting, not as famous as the the desert motel one. Uh, sure. it's, it's of a lobby, and it's it's right. it's not a grand lobby either. This is not a super fancy hotel lobby. It's a lobby that could exist in hundreds of different cities. Uh, and and there's one younger woman sitting in a chair reading. There's an older woman who seems to have been waiting for her husband, who has now arrived, coat slung over his arm. Um, I don't know. Tell me about how you react to that painting. I, I'm assuming it's woven into how you feel about hotel lobbies in general.
0: Well, the painting you're referring to is called Hotel Lobby. (laughs) Pardon me. It's called Hotel Lobby. It was finished in January, uh, early January of 1943. And although there are some hoppers, you know, there's, you know, maybe a dozen hoppers that are better known than that work. It is clearly his deepest dive into the hotel and hospitality services t- topic. Um, so what you're looking at there at far left in this painting is a revolving door. And the revolving door is sort of like a climate control system. And uh, it helps explain, because it's only going to let so much heat out and so much cold air in. And then it explains how in early January you can have a couple, as you said, an older couple wearing an uh, winter garb and a woman at right dressed for the, for the beach. But that hotel lobby has a, uh, kind of creepy clerk cropped at far right, reminding us of certain clerk characters in film. Think of the graduate, for example. But, but probably the most visually alluring part of it is that, is there's this green stripe in the middle of this. Um, And when you see this painting, it's owned by the Indianapolis Museum of Art at Newfields, Uh, which is where our exhibition is traveling next, in fact. When you see it, you realize that there's a kind of etiquette, there's a kind of protocol for how to walk in a hotel, especially in a lobby, which is um, a space seemingly under a lot of surveillance. Um, But that green, all the furniture in that painting, Uh, is very symmetrically uh, placed in relation to a green stripe. There seems to be rules, laws almost, for where you walk, what trajectory you take, and um, where you place furniture. And it appears that people spend a lot of time thinking about this, and it reminds us that as much of a leisure and comfort space as a lobby seems, it in fact is a highly... Controlled, ordered, organized space.
1: We're going to have to end on that very, very good point. Uh, we're out of time here, but Dr. Leo Mezzo, thank you so much. The book is Edward Hopper me. and the American Hotel. Get it. Get the roadmap. Get it. Go see the exhibition. Go to the Yale Art Gallery uh, and see Edward Hopper's. And right now, support this show, please. Nice people will ask you. All right, I'm one of those nice people,
4: persons. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. So uh, my, nice. my name is Ryan Karen King. I'm here with Ryan Lindsay, and uh, we're here asking you for your support. Um, if you've just listened to the Colin McEnroe show for the, the past hour, well, I don't really need to say much then because um, you know Colin does such a, a good job making a show. His team does such a good job making the show uh, so good that like I, I saw that the other day, a friend of mine who moved to California, it was like posting about a Colin McEnroe show, wow. and like like people, it's just a very unique uh, piece of i just i don't like using the word content because it's just not personal but it's just like <laughs> you know it's uh it, it, the show is so personal it, it you you listen to colin and you learn stuff that you just didn't even know you were gonna you know you were going to learn that it was possible to learn and this is stuff that's getting produced in your backyard right like we're a local public radio station we're, this is not a national program this is we have a stat you know it's colin and a team of two or three people yes. um and you know plus everyone else here but it's just a you know these people really care about this. His producers are working around the clock on the weekends here until you know the the early hours of the morning. Sometimes cutting right. tape, uh, making the "Pardon Me" podcast. Um, there's just so much that goes into it. Um, I am gushing with support and admiration for the team. <laughs> so I will stop now uh, and and let you uh, you know make that decision. But we really need your help to keep bringing you Colin McEnroe and all of the wonderful local programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. One eight hundred five eight four two seven is the number to call to help us out
3: we've got just a few moments left with you all we are inching towards our $1,000 goal we've got four hundred thirty dollars in the bank if you can help us get to a thousand in the next three ish minutes that would be amazing (laughs) Uh, I want to shout out our friend Kate in Groton and Jennifer in Middletown who says that Colin Mack is her hero She has a low-key crush on him. She wants to learn more about Connecticut politics and its history. She must know, she says. And so thank you, Jennifer. We have expressed your crush to Colin. (laughs) Um, But for our folks who are thinking about becoming new members or renewing members, in the vein of talking, as Colin was talking about, Airbnbs and hotels, there's a particular hotel in Yale, the study at New Haven, um, or the study at Yale, excuse me, in New Haven, um, that if you become a sustaining member or renewing member, you can get entered for a staycation, as my mother would say. So um, some lovely nights uh, home away from home at the stay. So, or the study, excuse me. No books required. Um, yeah. <laughs> but to, to be a part of that, you, you have to donate. So go ahead, WNPR.org or one 800 And thanks.